It's The World This Week. The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us is Matthew Dalton, reporter at the Paris Bureau of The Wall Street Journal. How are things? Pretty good, Francois. Pretty uh, good. Yeah, I just just want to highlight that um, my colleague Evan Gershkovich is, um, is still in prison. His um, detention was prolonged for another two months um, So, before his trial. So um, Trial in Moscow. In Moscow, that's right. And so he'll, he'll have been in prison for, for more than a year by the time his trial begins on um, completely unfounded and absurd allegations of espionage. And so it's, um, I just wanted to highlight um, what he's going through, and, and we're just hoping that that he gets out as soon as possible. All right. Well, thanks for flagging that. Uh, Vaiju uh, Naravane is Paris correspondent for The Wire and The Hindustan Times. Welcome to the show. How are things? Great. Great. Oh, wow. Okay. So they've gone from pretty good to great. And yes, Poirier, London correspondent for L'Express, is with us as well. How's your week been? Uh, not bad. Not bad. Okay. So it's, it's a mixed bag. We'll be crossing over to uh, France 24 Jerusalem correspondent Iris Macher will be joining our conversation shortly. Before we do, just to tell us, you can listen, like, and subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. The court considers that it cannot accede to Israel's request that the case be removed from the general list. It's the beginning, not the end, for South Africa's complaint before the International uh, Court of Justice in The Hague. The court finding that uh, Israel's got a report back in a month. It must, uh, in the meantime, prevent genocidal acts in Gaza and allow humanitarian aid in. Stopping short, though, of calling for a ceasefire. A win, nonetheless, argues South Africa's foreign minister. The saving of life is not uh, merely with respect. Uh, to having a ceasefire, it's to ensuring that humanitarian aid is provided uh, to those who need support, as well as ensuring uh, that the state of Israel, uh, which is currently uh, the occupier and administrator in Palestine, provides the necessary basic services that uh, the residents of Gaza and the West Bank require. Matthew Dalton, your, your reaction to what we, you just heard there about whether it's a win or a loss, if you will. I don't know if that's how you qualify such a ruling. Well, I, I think it was expected in the sense that uh, legal experts didn't think that the court was going to tell, was going to order a ceasefire for Israel. Um, you know, after all, it was Hamas that attacked Israel um, starting this war. Israel then, ret then retaliated and, and invaded the, the Gaza Strip. Um, the, the court did, for example, um, order a ceasefire um, in the, in, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine because that was an unprovoked invasion. Um, you know, that said, the, the, uh, the order to avoid genocide and um, as this operation continues um, is, is going to hang over Israel as it, as it proceeds. And what, it, what looks like um, it's going to be a very long military operation. In so car carrying moral weight is what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's something that, um, you know, the, 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 the eyes of the world are are even more on Israel. There's even more scrutiny of this operation as and, and the, the, the what Israel's facing right now is that um, there's still thousands of Hamas militants in the Gaza Strip. Um, the the Western Western governments estimate that less than um, half of the militant the, the, of um, Hamas's militants have been 
killed or, or taken out of um, operations. So this is this war from Israel's perspective, if it's, if its goal is really to um, eliminate Hamas, as uh, Netanyahu said was the goal of Israel, is very far from being over. And now um, the humanita humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip is only getting worse. Um, so this this puts a lot of scrutiny, a lot of pressure on Israel as it as it manages this war. Pressure pressure on Israel, and of course the prime minister responding in kind. Israel's commitment to international law is unwavering. Equally unwavering is our sacred commitment to continue to defend our country and defend our people. Like every country, Israel has an inherent right to defend itself. The vile attempt to deny Israel this fundamental right is blatant discrimination against the Jewish state, and it was justly rejected. The charge of genocide leveled against Israel is not only false, it's outrageous, and decent people everywhere should reject it. And again, the court did not rule on genocide in this particular case, Agnès Poirier. Well, it's only the first step in a very long, time-consuming and nuanced process. I mean, it will take years for the final ruling to take place. And, you know, it must have been very difficult for the 17 judges of the uh, International Court of Justice. And in a way, I mean, they are, you know, they were walking on eggshells, but they, it's a delicate balance, but it's a fine balance because it's... Both sides can claim victory in a way because uh, they rejected South Africa's requ request that Israel suspend immediately uh, all military operations, but it also rejected Israel's uh, request that the, the case be thrown out. Um, it is asking Israel to limit harm to Palestinians, but in the end, you know, Palestinians... Um, I mean, you can question, of course, South Africans, South Africa's motives in the, in that um, you know uh, suitcase in in uh, at the ICJ. But Palestinians um, have you know victory in the sense that, as you said, um, there is mounting international pressure. Also, for all the the you know the Western allies of Israel. It puts increased pressure, uh, which, you know, they've been applying on Israel for some time now, that a solution be, be, uh, be found, uh, especially as the fighting is, is bogged down in Gaza. But, of course, there's Netanyahu. And, and basically, it looks as if the situation is frozen and there, there's more than 100 hostages still in Gaza uh, and the Red Sea is now blocked. Egypt is playing a, a, a you know, more important role in trying to uh, release the hostages and to find a ceasefire for a few weeks or a few months. Everybody is working on it, um, but... Uh, yeah, it's certainly what we see before the cameras. Uh, we just heard that clip of... Uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, which is uh, that uh, Israel does not uh, uh, carry out genocide, does not uh, systematically uh, and uh, takes precautions when it's fighting uh, in Gaza. Well, there's a different take on that characterization. Listen to this resident of the uh, southern Gaza city of Rafah speaking on Thursday. The Israelis say they send prior warnings before strikes, but they don't. The strike hit us all of a sudden. Six people that are, however, not members of my family were martyred. They were two inside the mosque, one just outside it, and three displaced Gazans, 
a father and his two grandchildren. Yeah, it's again, it's the optics of, uh, of what's been unfolding for now more than 100 days, Vajun Aravani. Oh, absolutely. And the situation is very, very serious. In fact, the ruling by the court is uh, going to help other Western countries like the US or France, Germany, who've been trying to put pressure on Israel to say, listen, go for a ceasefire, go for a ceasefire. And also think of the ultimate solution, in a sense, to the whole question of two states, Palestine, the rights of the Palestinian people, which Netanyahu so far has stoutly uh, decided not to do. And this is going to say, all right, you're being watched. And it's uh, very difficult also for Israel to lead this kind of invasion, this campaign, without uh, the number of casualties that they're having, which is incredible and huge. Is Israel going to be able to heed what the court has asked it to do and really go in for the so-called surgical strikes or, you know, targeted uh, uh, attacks against particular targets is going to prove very difficult. But this does uh, strengthen, in a sense, the hands of all those countries which have been trying to persuade Israel to stop or go in for a ceasefire or whatever. Uh, events in The Hague, events in New York, events in Gaza. Uh, they've been making for a busy day for our Jerusalem correspondent, Iris Mockler, who, who joins us now. Thanks for joining us here in uh, the world this week, Iris. Uh, the court in The Hague urging Israel to take all measures in its power to prevent genocidal acts and to stop making uh, stop officials from making declarations that incite to genocide. However, uh, there was a disparaging tweet, uh, Haig Schmeig from far-right uh, uh, national security minister uh, Itamar uh, Ben-Gavir. Uh, your, your thoughts on, you just heard there uh, a moment ago, Vaiju talking about the, the pressure increasing. Is that pressure going to increase? I think the pressure is increasing because um, we have an other than Itamar Ben-Gvira's uh, characteristic tweet. In fact, I'm only surprised he didn't say more to dismiss the judgment, you know, freshly off the presses, uh, that, that we have heard a call from Israel's National Security, National Security Organization Council uh, calling on ministers not to say anything, no public response at all, thank you very much. And what we have heard from Israeli analysts is that really this should have been the position from the beginning, from the start, for Netanyahu to take that mantra or that thought for himself and to discipline uh, the variety of ministers in his party and beyond it who are in his government and made um, these incendiary comments. So now, you know, if they only do, do it at the behest of the ICJ, so the analysts in Israel are saying, then at least, you know, that's one achievement of the International Court of Justice. And every week we wonder, is it coming to a head because it's over soon or is it never ending amid moves to secure a ceasefire? We've seen this week's you've had the encircling of Han Yunus, uh, the largest city in southern Gaza. Uh, that's triggered heavy fighting. And for Israelis, there was that shock of uh, 20, uh, 27 reservists killed uh, when the building they were in uh, collapsed after a rocket-propelled grenade attack. According to the New York Times, Iris, they were part of a, 
an operation to clear a buffer zone along the border between Israel and Gaza. Yes, I think that's something that Israel says uh, not to the public, but certainly to Washington. Um, and that's how we hear it from American sources, that that's part of the plan, uh, that, that the fence that they had built to separate between the south of Israel and Gaza obviously wasn't effective enough and that this would be one step that Israel plans. But, you know, this whole question of what will the day after look like and what Israel's plans are, it's, it's kind of very foggy. You don't actually know because uh, Israel's prime minister doesn't want to have that discussion uh, in public or even, it seems, really in, in the cabinet either. Uh, and, you know, yeah. it's like Henry, Kiss Henry Kissinger said, if you don't know where you're going, all roads lead nowhere. And I think that's part of the problem that Israel faces. Yeah, well, so what do you make, for instance, there was this hot mic incident where uh, Benjamin Netanyahu disparaged uh, the Qataris, the Qataris who are trying to broker a ceasefire. Yeah, and it wasn't just hot mic. He was also um, quoted or um, taped by members of the hostages' families who he made that comment to. Uh, you know, it's very hard to determine what game he is playing if you don't look or add the factor of his own survival to it, his own political survival. Because at many points along this road, when it's a question of um, choosing Washington or choosing this right-wing, extremist right-wing coalition, it must be said, that he heads, he's chosen them and his own political survival because he actually has enough votes without them. But those votes, those are the people who've joined this government uh, since this war, but they aren't likely to stay. They aren't likely to support him forever. So he goes back to the people who will or who he believes will. And that's a very dangerous situation for Israel, actually. And yes, by you. Well, yes. I mean, the Israel, you know, the world wants to know what is Israel's strategy. But um, the country's strategy is linked to Netanyahu's political survival. Um, and um, there's also this other question, how long can a war cabinet last? You know, it's an emergency war cabinet, but it cannot last for months and months and months. At some point, the centrist partners um, will want, you know, uh, um, the, what is the future strategy? What, what about but haven't Palestine? we been saying this? Haven't we been saying this for, sorry, months now? Yes. Uh, but, you know, um, there, there are talks of perhaps elections uh, because you need to renew the trust in, in the leader. And, and, of course, Netanyahu owes uh, his uh, return to power last year to the far right. Um, at some point, something is going to give. But as, as long as the war is going on, uh, Netanyahu has the argument that, well, we can't... Uh, change horses in mid-war. We've got a, um, you know, I'm, I'm running things right now. Um, so it does uh, perversely kind of create an incentive to, the to continue the... The going anywhere. Uh, it's not well, as if, you know, something was Well, he has said, he is, but his goal, he has said, is the destruction, the complete elimination of Hamas, and who knows how long that will take. And um, if that's an argument that he's going to keep pressing, then um, maybe he his position is, well, we can't have a reckoning for my... Um, president in you know, my prime ministership, because that's something that's coming as well. And the, the huge security failures that happened on October 7th 
um, he's he's going to have to answer for those at some point. Sounds like his job is safe, Benjamin Netanyahu. Well, it's also interesting to see how long people like Benny Gantz and the other centrists who've actually joined this war cabinet, uh, who've been quite steadfast in a sense in supporting Netanyahu, or at least not publicly criticizing him. How long are, are they going to be able to last? At what point do they decide, no, this has gone on too far, we are walking out, because already calls for the holding of elections are growing, the hostage families are really at the end of their tether. So within Israel also, a situation is boiling up little by little, it's getting hotter and hotter. So there has to come a tipping point. Now, how far that tipping point is, we can't really say. What is the, what is the tipping point? What, is it, what, is, what will the tipping point be, Iris Makler? Oh, Francois, how can I predict that? <laughs> I can only look um, and say to you that I see increasing amounts of stress uh, with the families and spreading out from them. The most common thing anyone says to me when I ask ordinary Israelis, you know, wherever I meet them, um, I say, what do you want? And they all say, we want, we want a new face to this government. I'd rather have people who have no experience and they can learn on the job than this lot. So there's definitely a move amongst people for change. And there's also a feeling that, um, a feeling, you know, it's expressed over and over again, what we've just been saying in the studio, this fear that Netanyahu is placing his personal interests uh, above the interests of the, the state. You know, that 53% that of people asked that question in a poll said, yes, we don't think he's placing our interests above his own. So that's a bad look for a prime minister any prime minister anywhere. So I think, I think you're right when you say it'll bubble along. Where, where the tipping point will be or the explosion will be, it might actually be around the issue of the hostages. Because if, if no deal is done and something trickles out that the deal wasn't done because of the right-wing parties in that um, coalition, and if in that case the centrists leave, that really would be an explosion. Something to watch. Uh, on a happier note for India, we can say happy 75th. Like the French, they love a parade for Republic Day, a military parade. And just as Prime Minister Narendra Modi was guest of honor on Bastille Day last year, a French contingent invited to march in Delhi while their commander-in-chief watched from the review stand. Uh, there was, of course, as well, the announcements of uh, Vaiju Naravani, of deals for uh, building uh, helicopters and jet engines. Uh, and on the quiet, uh, Republic Day is also about India pivoting away from uh, its main supplier of weapons in the past, Russia. Yes, well, France has begun to occupy a bigger and bigger position. There are three main suppliers to India. One of them is Israel, which is why also the Modi government hasn't come out with any kind of criticism about Gaza or what's been happening there. They're sort of walking on eggs. That's the same thing with Russia and Ukraine. Have you ever heard direct criticism of the uh, attack against Ukraine by the Russians? Because they're one of the three main suppliers of arms along with France. And... Uh, Macron wasn't the first choice. In fact, Modi was snubbed by the Americans. They had asked uh, uh, 
uh, Joe Biden to be the guest of honor, and he turned down and refused, partly because there are reports in the American Congress, and there's a lot of concern in America about India going the majoritarian, extreme, right-wing, nationalist, Hindu way, with a lot of actions against the Muslim minority and other minorities. Hinduism has almost been raised to the status of national religion, although India's constitution is a secular one. But the current party in power with Modi, who's been in power for 10 years, has increasingly placed Hinduism, and with that, everything else that goes with it, a kind of reactionary mindset, belief in superstition, constructions of temples, and this temple has been erected well, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, going where Joe Biden did not to India uh, just uh, uh, f uh, four days after a uh, uh, controversial inauguration. Macron uh, kicking off in Jaipur, historic, the capital of Rajasthan, the scene uh, uh, where there, there was a, uh, a motorcade with Narendra Modi, the two leaders, uh, they all, he also went, Macron, to the Amber Fort, a reminder of a rich heritage there. Uh, there you see that motorcade. Uh, but there was, as uh, Vaiju was mentioning, uh, three days previous, India's prime minister consecrating the unfinished Ayodhya temple, a shrine to the deity Ram, that's long been a promise of Hindu nationalists ever since 1992, when they tore down the Mughal-era mosque that stood on the same site. Our Ram has arrived. After centuries of waiting, our Ram has arrived. Centuries of unprecedented patience, countless sacrifices and penance, our Lord Ram has arrived. After centuries of waiting, and you're saying that's why Joe Biden decided not to go? One of the reasons, because also uh, India has been trying very hard to get into the good books of the Americans to change the image that India was pro-Moscow. And, you know, this whole thing about wanting to contain China, becoming the favored partner of the Americans in order to contain China, um, that still hasn't completely materialized, but, although but India got, is part of the state, quad. Narendra Modi got a state dinner at the White House. I mean, it's a, Yes, that's true. I mean, the, 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 the relations between the two countries are very close, and Modi has brought India much, much closer to America. But yet there seems to be a degree of hesitation because the manner in which Modi was rebuffed with his invitation to the Republic Day startled quite a few people. And they're wondering what the reasons for it was. I think a lot of Americans do frown upon this extreme right-wing Hindu nationalist turn that India has taken because we used to say India and America are similar in that we accommodate every stripe, every religion, every but Joe Biden Believe. knew that when he when he when he welcomed Narendra Modi. It's the same Narendra Modi that came to the White House. True, but then going there just a couple of days after the inauguration of this temple, right. with millions of Indians thronging the streets, going there is a different cup of tea. Matthew Dalton. Well, <clears throat> there's also this um, suspicion that uh, India was behind a plot mm. to assassinate a yes. Sikh separatist in. 
the United States and, and that it did assassinate a Sikh separatist in Canada. Um, so those two things, that was, those were two big events that have really um, troubled U.S.-India relations. Um, you know, it's also worth remembering uh, about <clears throat> France's relationship with, with India is that if you remember a few years ago, uh, Mac, France had this deal with Australia to sell Australia uh, a bunch of submarines. submarines. submarines yeah. it, was, it was the and it was part of a big geostrategic agreement between the two countries. And then uh, the the Australia ditched the agreement secretly without telling France and signed a, a submarine deal with the U.S. and with the U.K. Um, the French foreign minister said it was a stab in the back. And so now France is looking for another partner in the Pacific, the Indo-Pacific region as, as kind of a counter to China. And India is one of the main candidates for that. So France is really looking forward to selling submarines, selling fighter jets, selling all kinds of stuff, including nuclear reactors to India. Um, it's got a whole program that it hopes can pick up some of the slack that was left by this um, snub from Australia. Of course, uh, Iris Makler, uh, the, the Australian prime minister on whose watch all that happened, announced this week he was retiring from politics. Uh, your, your thoughts when you listen there to, to Vaiju Naravane talk about uh, how uh, uh, India, the way it positions itself on the world stage when you have things like the war in Ukraine and what's going on where you are. It is interesting the strong relationship that um, Narendra Modi has built up with Israel. Um, you know, he's been here, uh, he's a big supporter, and, and he places himself with Israel, uh, with Russia, with the US. You can say, despite uh, what Vidu has called these extremist religious views, He's actually playing a good hand of politics, wouldn't you say? Uh, of course, when we talk about reasons for not going to Republic Day, just another one, a simpler one might just be, Agnès Poirier, that India is having elections. Uh, they take place in April and it's perhaps a little bit close and you don't want your visit to be seen as a, as, as a political endorsement. Yet Macron did not refuse. He went. Yes, well, it seems to me, having seen, you know, over the years, Modi and Macron, they seem to have a sort of a personal good relationship. I mean, um, you know, between a relationship that goes beyond the real politic, because, you know, this, um, this trip that has been organized in just 40 days, which is nothing, you know, for those kind of official visits, especially when you know how long it takes to negotiate contracts so that they are signed during the official visit. And so, of course, there's a lot of real politics. You know, you mentioned the nuclear uh, reactors, six of them we want to sell. And also to build that, it's been in the pipeline for 10 years, I think, to build the world's biggest power plant in, uh, in India. Um, but yeah, I think there's something personal. I mean, you, you, you know, you could see that. That's why Macron didn't mind, you know, being a second fiddle. You know, he wasn't the first choice. Fine, he's the second choice. He, he goes because Modi is his friend. Um, so, and it's interesting also, if you look at the British media, not a word. And I think they're quite jealous, you know. <laughs> well, uh, 75 yeah. years is a big deal, right? 75 years is a very big deal. 75 years is a very big deal. And yes, it's true that 
Modi and Macron have struck a chord somewhere and perhaps their relationship goes a little beyond, uh, you know, the kind of usual relationships that you have between heads of state and government. Uh, but at the same time, I think France is desperate to sell things to India, especially military hardware. Because if you look at the, the trade relations between the two countries mm -hmm. and the investment that goes in the civilian sector, it's not huge. And the French are always concerned, saying, why are the Indians not investing in France? Because now the Indians export, I mean, they invest more abroad than the investments they get into India, which is a very new phenomenon. Well, to plant the seeds of that, uh, there was one announcement made. Right now, there's some 10,000 Indians who come to study here mm -hmm. in France. And the same week that they've uh, been talking about this controversial immigration yes. bill, uh, well, uh, the French pledging, they would triple that number. Yes, it's it's very, I mean, you have this kind of double bind communication coming out from this government. On the one hand, the immigration bill says, oh, we are going to limit the number of students and the visas that you give to the students. And on the other hand, Macron goes and says, you've got to triple the number of Indian students who come to France. We don't know how that is going to square up. Will they come? Um, I don't know. The language barrier is very strong, although uh, schools like Sciences Po and others are now teaching in English. There are more, more and students, more schools. Yes, there, there are students who are coming to France. But at the same time, France must understand that it's huge degrees. I mean, even degrees from Sciences Po do not are not considered to be prize degrees compared to Harvard or Princeton or any of the British universities. So the French also have a big effort to make into making those degrees internationally viable and valuable. So that's another thing. All right, Emmanuel Macron, who uh, is going to be segging from pageantry to pitchforks, he's returning to a farmer's revolt tractors this Friday. Uh, converging on Paris ahead of the uh, government's announcement of a farm bill to streamline paperwork and uh, in scenes reminiscent uh, of Wednesday in Warsaw or last week in Berlin, French agriculture uh, workers more and more fuming mad. Uh, here you see them. They've been spraying manure earlier in the week on the uh, prefecture, the state superintendent's office. This was in the southwestern town of Agen since COVID. Farmers have felt the squeeze of inflation and the law of, uh, there you see that manure being sprayed, uh, dwindling margins imposed by distributors and supermarket chains. We can't do it anymore. We are at our wit's end. That's why we're here, to make ourselves heard a bit. And I hope we'll make people understand our distress. Okay, so we've had announcements that have just come out from France's new prime minister, and among them, the scrapping of a bid to phase out the subsidy for agricultural diesel. We decided to put agriculture above all else. Above all else. This is an important day for French agriculture, for the farming world, for our farmers here, in the Occitanie region and throughout France. Farmers are waiting for what I'm going to tell you today, because everyone wants to move forward, continuing to talk to each other, knowing how to put agriculture above everything else. 
That's what my two ministers are here to say today. Still takes getting used to. He's 34 years old, the, the agriculture minister. Your reaction to uh, the agriculture, the prime minister, <laughs> uh, your reaction to what you just heard there from, uh, from Gabriel Attal? Well, it's, um, you know, he's in a dangerous position, but um, things will be really agreed or changed or in, in Brussels because it's a European problem more than a French problem. Um, because the streamlining we, of the red tape, the easing off on environmental norms, perhaps? No, that that is true. I mean, French farmers, but I'm sure it's the plight of many farmers in Europe, have said that uh, a week, uh, a day every week is taken by bureaucracy, you know, filling in forms for France, but also European papers, etc. So, I mean, this is what uh, Gabriel Attal can try and, and do. That is to say, certainly to what he's promising, decreasing the bureaucracy. But frankly, what, a sta what is at stake is, is goes far beyond bureaucracy. It's about the future of agriculture. I mean, after decades of intensive farming agreed on in, in Brussels and France benefiting, you know, I think it's almost eight billion euros a year. And it's that the biggest country to get, uh, or rather it's the biggest share um, that uh, French agriculture is, is getting from Brussels. And now we want farmers, of course, to depollute the rivers, uh, the soil, the air. It's going to cost more subsidies to help them transition. Uh, but at the same time, it's, you know, there are so many contradictions in, in Europe when Brussels is also asking for more food to be produced. This is not possible if you start the polluting, if you want a more ecological, viable uh, agriculture, it means less food and also more expensive food. So uh, I think, you know, farmers have a lot to, uh, to answer to, especially uh, pig farms in France and the big cereals. I mean, they are responsible for a lot of pollution in France. So uh, they need to look at themselves and what they've been doing. Europe has to do that as well, France as well, and consumers. Right. So so the, the, the uh, common agricultural policy, which is basically the EU subsidy scheme, still the biggest line item in the European Union's budget. Mm. Uh, Matthew Dalton, you just heard uh, Agnès expo expo expose the problem. If they want to reform it, uh, if they want to make it more conditional uh, on uh, more, uh, 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 a more sustainable way uh, mm -hmm. of growing food, well, what the French farmers are complaining about mm -hmm. is We'll do it, but then we're going to be undercut by the competition and we're already being squeezed by the big distributors, by the supermarket chains. Well, Macron kind of ran into this problem earlier in his presidency with the Gilets jaunes, that whole episode with the um, people coming out, the rolling protests that uh, ground the country to a halt for you know months and months, more than a year, um, it seemed like. Uh, was due to an effort to raise the the tax on fuel. It was and, sparked and, by by a, by a, uh, a carbon tax. Right. It was it was sparked by a carbon tax. Same 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 issue with the cost of fuel. And this is something that I think Macron's argument, Macron's government, his various governments have been and have been kind of blind to the issues that have that rural France is facing. Um, in rural France, people need their cars. They they have no al alternative but to drive in, in many places. Um, and so the cost of those measures is very expensive for them. Likewise, farmers, um, 
there's no alternative for agricultural diesel right now. There's no switch they can do. Uh, they, they, it's it's something that they it is an unavoidable cost for them. So, um, you know, the government probably has to be thinking a little bit more closely about about those issues that are that are facing the French countryside. Even though it's true that French farmers, like farmers in the United States, farmers across Europe do get a lot of subsidies. I mean, they, they get plenty of government help. Um, you know, the, uh, they're the kind of the biggest sort, biggest recipients of government welfare by some estimates. Um, but they've been killed by inflation is what they've told us. You know, we, right. we spoke with one farmer uh, mm. who was in the center of France in Thursday's show, and you know, mm. he just says, since COVID, they just can't meet, make ends meet. Yeah, you need the subsidies to, to keep farms in business. That That's true. I mean, the, if... If those subs, if the common agricultural policy didn't exist, you'd have uh, all of the all of that grain. So much more imports coming from America, coming from South America. Um, so it's it's something that's necessary, um, but it, it is costly. You're, when you report on this story for uh, for India, because you had big farmers protests there, yes. uh, Naravani, what do they make of uh, the? Uh, how should I say, hot-blooded way in which, I mean, we saw those images of the manure being sprayed on the prefecture sure. in Najan. Well, there was a, there was a delegation uh, of from Europe who went to India to look at the state of Indian farming, and they asked one farmer, what would you like to be reborn as under your system of remigration of souls? And he says, I'd like to be born as a European cow, because I have all the subsidies in the world, I'm well looked after and totally protected, unlike my skinny uh, cattle in India. So yes, even in India, the farm lobby has been very strong. This is the only lobby that has been able to make Modi turn back three proposed farm laws. So three farm laws that had been actually legislated upon had to be withdrawn because of very strong protests by Indian farmers. But sometimes the problems are the same. It's like waterlogging of farms, the overproduction of nitrogen, the the d destruction of soils and the aquifers. So how are you going to balance that? And of course, the French have been very protected because during COVID, it was these subsidies from the European Union that allowed France to continue to be well-nourished and receive all the, um, the food that it required during COVID times. They didn't have to go scrabbling around elsewhere, unlike other countries in Europe. So on the one hand, this has been a successful policy for the French, but on the other hand, how are you going to counterbalance it with your environmental norms and objectives? Right, and uh, despite the, the roadblocks, the manure toss, the trashing of the public property, zero arrests, and that, well, it's irked environmentalists. You had the Dernier Renovation climate protest block a highway for 15 minutes. They end up in custody and the court cases pile up. In this case, if environmentalists did one thousandth of what's going on today, they'd be in prison and sentenced. And strangely enough, France's law and order interior minister seems to agree. <laughs> I have confidence in farmers. I know their profession is a difficult one, essential for the French, and if they ever respect the rules of the Republic, and I know they do so because they are patriots, there is no reason for the police or gendarmerie to intervene. Uh, how do you say pandering in French? 
<laughs> I mean, well, that's surprising, isn't it? He's openly saying, yes, they can throw that manure. They won't, they won't face any consequences. It, it's, um, it's interesting because, in a way, that's what the uh, interior minister um, had to say 20 or 40 years ago because farmers represented a force to be reckoned with. There was nothing you could do against them. They ruled the day. Today, farmers... Unlike students. <laughs> <laughs> but farmers today actually are, don't represent that many people. But the French all love their, their peasant roots, right? From time to time. <laughs> they are all, so, they are, we, all, we all think we are proud well, of, our, of our heritage. Yes and no. You know, it's, it's a bit of a myth when, you know, I often go to Brittany and, and pig farms are responsible for so much polluting. Every river in Brittany is completely poisoned with fertilizers. So I think as we become more, eco, you know, ecologically, you know, conscious, then we realize that farmers need to transition, need to do uh, better, smaller, perhaps we need to help them. And we also need, I'll, I'll say that again, because a chicken today, if you go to a supermarket, it costs what in France? About seven euros. And it costs oh, 10 more. times <laughs> that just after the war. Um, we will need to pay more for food yeah. so that farmers are paid a decent wage. I mean, we all need, we're all part of this discussion, really. Yeah. The another thing is that the union that we see, that FNSR, which represents cereal farmers, exactly. and they are amongst the wealthiest of the farmers. They don't have very much to complain, actually. And the biggest polluters. It's, and the biggest polluters. It's the cattle lobby, which has had suicides and where uh, people have not been. It's cattle farmers and animal breeders who've had problems. It's not so much the cereal lobby, but they're the ones who are the most organized, the wealthiest, with the loudest voices. Yeah, and earlier in the week, uh, uh, what, what we saw there, that exchange between uh, one of the leaders of the Green Party and, and the, uh, the interior minister, well, that kind of presages the fact that we have European elections coming up. Earlier this week, the president of the party of far-right uh, leader Marine Le Pen, uh, he visited the Brittany port of Lorient, Jordan Bardella, uh, surfing a wave, you might say, of anger. Uh, over a fishing ban during breeding season for dolphins and porpoises uh, along the a Atlantic coast. Uh, Matthew Dalton, uh, if, if this is pitted as an argument of uh, city folk versus country folk, uh, the far right wins? Well, I think it's, yeah, it's a kind of argument that helps, um, you know, the Rassemblement National, I think. Um, you look at Go back to the Gilets Jaunes again. This this is a significant chunk of the Gilets Jaunes were were supporters of of the far right. Of I mean, it was kind of like a coalition of the far left and the far right, but probably more the far right. And um, and now you have these issues of of environmental issues that are really impacting um, rural France, uh, both you know, the fishing. Um, you've got the the diesel issue. Um, so this is kind of the coalition, I think, that uh, the Rassemblement National is trying to assemble. It's a it's outside of the cities for the most part. Um, it's in industrial areas. It's um, in rural France. Um, and if they can kind of just get a few more, you know, they came they came thinking about the presidential election um, in, in a number of years. They came very close last time, um, pretty close. And. If they can just expand that coalition a little more, um, maybe make a few more inroads into the 
industrial areas into, you know, maybe even the, the, the suburban areas of the big French cities, right. um, you know, that then Marine Le Pen will be president. Well, we'll see. The election campaign is just beginning for those European elections in June. Nothing's more subjective than awards season. In Los Angeles, nominations out for the Academy Awards. A few short years after a boycott campaign against the underrepresentation of women uh, at the Oscars, this time a record three movies directed by women are up for Best Picture. But elsewhere, there was one notable absentee. For achievement in directing, the nominees are Justine Trier, Anatomy of a Fall. Martin Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon. Christopher Nolan, Oppenheimer. Yorgos Lanthimos, Poor Things. And Jonathan Glazer, The Zone of Interest. So there you have it, Iris Mockler. No Greta Gerwig for Best Director, even though it's her direction that made quirky box office smash Barbie such a success. By the way, no Best Actress uh, nomination uh, for uh, Margot Robbie. Uh, is the only one of the, the, the big ones. You, you have uh, Best Supporting Actor going for Ryan Gosling as Ken. <laughs> That's right. Someone, someone said, um, which I did agree with, you know, Ken gets the only award. That's the entire film, the entire movie in, in one event. Uh, and and it is, I guess, you know, it, she wasn't just the director. She was also the writer, the creator, Greta Gerwig, of course. Uh, it was her idea. She took something that no one wanted and no one wanted to fund, and she had to fund partly herself, um, wrote it with her partner, so for all of those reasons, given what a box office smash it was, you'd think she'd get a look in, but no. <laughs> Your thoughts on this? Well, uh, it was very surprising, especially since Greta Gerwig is such a talented director. Everybody remembers her Little Women, which was absolutely sensational. But somehow, I think they have decided that because Mattel was perhaps involved and they had the approval of Mattel for the making of the Barbie movie, they'd much rather not take chances with that corporate pat on the back, which she got. Well, we'll see what happens when the best picture uh, category comes along. Now, uh, you did hear uh, in that list the name of Justine Trier, the 45-year-old French woman garnering five Oscar nominations after winning the Cannes Film Festival's Golden Palm uh, the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film for her stirring courtroom drama, Anatomy of a Fall. France, though, didn't submit the movie for Best Foreign Film at the Academy Awards. One can only wonder if there's a link to her acceptance speech at Cannes smack in the middle of pension reform protests, uh, where she told the audience the commercialization of culture that the neoliberal government defends is the process of shattering France's cultural exception. Do you think that the French snubbed her, Agnès Poirier, because of that speech? And, no, uh, what she said at the, uh, in Cannes was crass and uh, I think ridiculous, but that's not the reason why her film, which is excellent, uh, was not um, chosen. There are many different, I mean, they don't have to go for the Palme d'Or. 
uh, winner. Uh, they made another choice. We should talk about that choice. It's it has it had ha, it has had sorry different English title. Um, uh, it's called the Taste of Things. In French, it has this impossible it's a title. It's a beautiful movie. It's the Passion of Dodin Buffon. I think that the, the title in French is so. It, So they, so weren't, they, weren't punishing, they weren't punishing Justine Trier. No, because The Passion of Dodin Buffon, The Taste of Things in English, is a fantastic film. Okay. And it was not a box office success. It did have the best director's prize. I need to talk more about this film, please. And, We're out um, of time, though. It's, it's a Franco-Vietnamese director. And it's, it's a pity, of course, it's not nominated for best foreign film. But Justin Trier should be, you know, so happy. Yeah, five, five nominations, nominations, including best picture. So we'll see how it plays out. Great movie. Agnès Poirier, I want to thank you. I want to thank as well mm -hmm. Matthew uh, Dalton, uh, Vaiju Naravane, Iris Mockler in Jerusalem. Thank you for being with us here in the world this week.